I was trying to think of a fun Shakespeare character to do panicked. Alas, poor Yorick. When, when shall we three meet again? <laughs> and, and thunder? And lightning? And rain? rain? Come now on, sex me here. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. All right, this bodes well. Good boding. Oh, holy shit. So um, I still do the New York Times crossword every day. Mm. But there's like a little article called Wordplay that goes with it, which also has explanations for some of the tricky clues. So I'll go to that article if I'm stuck because it oh, gives sure. me a couple of answers. But I, I ended up reading the comments today. There's also like a set of notes from the constructor. Oh. And so in the crossword, spoilers for Saturday's New York Times crossword puzzle, but Shabbat Shalom was one of the um, answers. Mm. And the constructor did like a whole little bit with lots of Yiddish in his constructor notes. And then there were the, the, the anti-Semitism was there in the comments. Jesus, really? God, don't the constructors... I know everyone who works at the New York Times is Jewish, but don't they think about the fact that the people doing the crossword might not be? Oh my God, what? I know. It's just they like, fit in like little French bits all the time. Also not being funny, but like as, there was only one like... Yiddish answer. It was it was more complaining about the Yiddish and the construction. I'm not being funny, but I recognize I recognize most of those phrases as well because I I don't know watch a lot of television. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I know what Ove means. Yeah. Wow. It was just such a weirdly vitriolic comment over such a non-issue. Yeah. It was very like this has not been designed for me specifically. How dare you? People don't like being stupid. All right, well, don't be yeah. fucking stupid then. Agreed. I uh, went off the deep end on Twitter last night, or just last night. I retweeted the screenshot of somebody who is a bar worker and had screenshotted a review. Someone left being all arsy because, well, I'll read a bit out. The girl working at the front wouldn't let us change the music and was playing hard rock, which no one wanted to listen to. I asked if I could request a song, to which she said no. And then I asked if I could play a different genre, brackets, because she was playing weird rock music. She said no. And I asked about changing the genre, to which she said, I've been working 12 hours, so no. If I'm a patron at this bar, I expect to be able to listen to the music my group wants, especially when the entire bar is empty. Come on, blanked out name, and hire better workers. Um, and oh, the, fuck off. I know. And the worker like tweeted it like, lol. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many salty men in the comments. As it turned out, I was wrong with my retweet because I quote tweeted it and said something like, men just cannot stand reading about another man being told no. And it was a girl, apparently, and her mates oh, right. who had done it in the first place, but all of the shit replies are men. Uh, so I think they've made the same mistake as me (laughs) the world has not entirely got to be perfectly designed for you like if you don't like the music in a bar you you aren't obligated to drink there no exactly the man in these replies you're not getting a tip by the way you're there to serve customers not the other way around got to balance your ego and they're also patronising ego and patience with your job same as they don't have to go there the company doesn't have to employ you Oh my fucking god! Like just so many of these. Ah, it's the fucking horrific sense of entitlement that completely forgets that the person that you're saying you have to cater to my every whim and you have to change the music to suit me, or you don't get a tip and you shouldn't be employed is a fucking human being who has to be in that place constantly. Yeah, like allow them something that makes their thing more bearable. Yeah, and honestly, even they're wrong as well. That's not normal customer service. No. I don't think it is in America either, but it certainly isn't in in the UK. Like if we were working behind the bar and someone's like, "Oh, change the music," me and my mates don't like it. Be like, no. Or if no. they asked really nicely, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, what too maybe?" But yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah especially if wrong, we were like... cleaning up at the end of the shift. Like, yeah, fuck. exactly. Like, no, get out. <laughs> I've been here for 12 hours, you freaks. Oh. Let me have this. <laughs> 
that you, I shouldn't have to ask you to let me have this because I do not need your permission. Jesus, God, I hate people. I know. I would never be able to work customer facing again. No. I've, I've done the odd shift since I left it full time and I've done all right, but it's, it's better when you know it's only that one night and yeah. you know, you're not going to get fired if you're rude to somebody. Yeah, I, I don't. Occasionally I find myself missing the bar work a bit, but I don't really actually want to do bar work again i miss that very specific time of my life which yeah. is me and one of my best mates dancing around behind a bar drinking as much as the customers were yeah and not paying for it i can't imagine my response to the various middle-aged men who used to talk to me like oh god no i remember the one who like realized i was relatively new behind the bar and insisted on like walking me step by step through pouring his Guinness. Yeah, I I may have been new behind that bar, but I've been pouring Guinness for a good long while at that point. Also, can everyone fuck off with Guinness, please? With the there's like it's fine if it comes out looking the same. I promise, I promise, guys. I know you're gonna come back at me on this. I promise it will taste the fucking same. Yeah, it does. Whether not or mean. not it's poured exactly the way you like it, I promise you are imagining it. If you think it's tasting different. I can tell you that from vast experience pouring and drinking it. Like, yeah, it's guys, it's fine. I can't remember where I was now, but I was in a bar and someone was pouring me a pint of lager and it had a massive head on it and they couldn't get it to pour without the head. And it was, yeah. I could tell it was in no way anything to do with how they were pouring it. It was yeah. just like a weirdly lively barrel and I felt so bad for them. And I was just like, oh, that really sucks. I'm sorry. Do you want me to order something else? I really am not picky. And they just looked at me and... Before they could respond, a guy further down the bar told them to pull the pump back differently. And like, I could genuinely see the full murder fantasy <laughs> play out behind, behind this woman's eyes. <laughs> and like, I wasn't trying to do some big dignified thing. It was just I wanted a drink faster and it yeah, was going yeah, yeah. to take them an hour to pour that pint because that lager was overly lively or whatever. Yeah. Was... I still much prefer it to wipe sing. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> At least people getting drinks are pretty happy. I still think my favourite ever faux pas I made while waitressing was there was the group that I think they sang or something at the cathedral every week and then oh, they yeah. came in for a Sunday roast. And one time they came in and one of them was quite young. So he was probably like 18 or so. He was about my mm -hmm. age. And it was Easter. So of course we had a rabbit special on. And of course every time I brought it to a customer I was referring to it as the Easter bunny. And this guy's lip started to fucking wobble and I have never felt like such an asshole. Like I don't think oh. it occurred to him. We just went, oh, rabbit's a nice thing. And then he suddenly went, Easter bunny. Oh. <laughs> I felt like such a dick, but it was also one of the funniest things that had ever happened to me. Before we go into the episode, mm -hmm. dear listeners, General Wanker about Town Glinner has um, been trying to say and... Gl Glinner, to... background writer on Black Books, Father Ted, noted turf. Yeah, uh, giant transphobic word I'm not allowed to say on the podcast. Uh, anyway, he's been mean and written lots of dreadful shite about good friend of the pod, Mark Burrows. So listeners, now be a lovely time if you haven't already. Go grab a copy of Magic Terry Pratchett, one of Mark's other books. If you've read them, maybe go and leave a nice review. Uh, maybe just tweet Mark and tell him he's pretty or something. I don't know. But this is also a nice reminder to any turfs who have somehow found their way to the podcast. What the fuck are you doing here, Shush? Again. 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 Shush. This is a trans-friendly <laughs> podcast. Uh, I was going to say something. Totally gone. Something about podcasting, maybe? or Oh, yeah. Do you, um, you want to make a podcast? Yeah, let's make a podcast. <laughs> Line. Line. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, 
Hello and welcome to The True Shall Make You Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Pratchett's Discord series one at a time in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part three, but not the final part of our discussion of Nightwatch. We're getting our there. Our first four-parter. I'm so glad we split this up into four parts. Yeah, and no. <laughs> so I was like, much. oh, this get oh more. Of- yeah, that's right. More events. More. Okay. Yeah. No, Joanna was right. Okay. There's a big event in this section that has quite a few like upsetting moments, mm. and I like every time I read this book, I blank out how upsetting that section is until I get there. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Like putting the post-its in. Obviously, I read this book like two weeks ago to prep for it before I started doing the notes and stuff Mm. and i somehow managed to blank it out in those two weeks (laughs) yeah yeah uh note on spoilers before we crack on obviously we are a spoiler light podcast heavy spoilers for the book night watch but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the discworld series and we're saving any and all discussion of the final discworld novel the shepherd's crown until we get there so you dear listener can come on the journey with us inch by inch pushing the barricade before you excellent is that how you move a barricade? Pushing it, I was guessing. I think I, I was picturing a kind of leapfrogging where you start like ah, deconstructing and rebuilding. Like so a like you're taking stuff kind of thing. Yeah. Smart. Yeah, that makes more sense. Okay. Uh, we should look into this for when yeah. <laughs> we start building barricades during our revolution. Something yes. we've discussed multiple times. Absolutely. All right. So, so Joanna. Follow so, up. Follow up. We have follow up. Um, I have some replies on our Reddit mm-hmm. talking about, because I, I asked for people's favorite tiger poems. Um, let me have a look. Somebody, uh, user, this is God, totally, also enjoys the tiger by William Blake. Good to know. Uh, Bradley D82 doesn't have a favorite tiger poem, but does have a favorite tiger book, The Tiger Who Came to Tea, which is a good choice. It is a good book. And finally, uh, Sander Vogel has come up with a panther poem, which was originally in German and is very cool. Uh, in the Jardin de Plantes, Paris, his eyes have got so weary of the bars going by, they can't grasp anything else. He feels like there's a thousand bars, a thousand bars and no world beyond. The soft tread of his strong, supple stride turns him in ever tighter circles, like the dance of force about a centre in which a great will stands, stunned. But now and then the curtains over his eyes quietly lift and an image enters, goes through his tense and silent limbs and dies out in his heart. Incredibly depressing. That's Rilke for you. Yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, <coughs> I'll link the link that Sondervogel gave me, which also has the original German, which is just as depressing, I'm told. But thank you for Tiger Poems, dear listeners. Yeah. Um, we also got some people on Twitter. Uh, Andy and Brum... Uh, told us to have a look at Royal Navy Dazzleflage. Ooh, okay. Which uh, I had a look. Dazzle camouflage, not just the glitter, but the weirdly painting ships. So it was less to hide them, but more so it was impossible to figure out where it actually fucking was. Um, If you have a quick look just at the Wikipedia pages, there's some really cool pictures of like the way weird stripes and stuff were painted on ships. I won't go into a huge detail of it, but... uh, This looks like... um, Do you remember... Oh, I don't even remember if it's on the podcast or not we talked about this, but do you remember when we were briefly really interested in uh, the kind of makeup you can do to stop facial recognition? Yes. This looks like that. Yeah, I think it's a similar concept. Ah, it's, 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 It's just like really advanced disruptive camouflage. Love it, love it. Yes. But marking this. Cool. Thank you. And oh, one other thing. Uh, not Vogons, not not O Vogons on Twitter. So uh, you're like, not, it's not Vogons. I was like, good. <laughs> it's definitely no one's forcing us to listen to Vogon poetry today. 
wonder if Fogons wrote poems about tigers. Hmm. Let's not find out. Anyway, sorry, Tiddy on Twitter said, uh, one of my favourite little bits in the Assassin's Banquet scene is a reference to Ludo Ludorum, mm. who is one of Tepic's schoolmates. So dating that oh. kind of dates when Pyramids falls in the timeline. And added, I wonder if Tepic and Vetinari cross paths. Oh, I bet. That's cool. There was another re- name that I recognised and forgot to look up. I'm going to have to do maybe a little deep dive for the next episode on all the names I highlighted and then get time to look at and see if there's any really good ones in there that I'm going to miss otherwise, because that's a good one that I missed. That, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't even highlight that one. So. Um, I, I think it would be very difficult to spot every single callback and oh, yeah, for reference sure, but like- and things. <laughs> yeah. I want, I want anyway... To- now we followed up Francine. Do you yes. want to tell us what happened previously on Nightwatch? Yes. Previously on Nightwatch. As a young veterinary learns why the tiger got his stripes, Sam Vimes, aka John Keel, buys a revolutionary pie and tension thickens like gravy in the streets of Ankh-Morpork. Feeling eyes upon him, Vimes nabs young Nobby, feeds him up and sends him out to watch the people watching before Uno reversing a would-be framer and learning something interesting about Ned Coates. When violence bubbles to the surface of the Moporkian gravy, Vimes prepares to tackle the real enemy, the unmentionables. They fall into his trap as he opens the doors to the rest of the world, painting his own tableau with a cup of cocoa and an attempted assailant. After some questionable antics with a six-pack of ginger beer, Vimes is yanked from the street and into high society. Briefly, he turns down an invitation to insurgency as Vetnari watches from the shadows behind him. Ooh... Yay. How about you? How about you? You've got the good one. You want me to summarise this section? I'm not going to lie. I've kind of glossed over a certain <laughs> This has got to be the worst one to summarise, right? Of the yeah, four? I've glossed over a bit to, because we'll talk about it in depth later. Okay, uh, awesome. So this section I mentioned last week, but it ends on page 356 in the Corgi paperback with, we don't have to make a big fuss about being the best sir. We just know. Fair. In this section... Vimes sleeps standing up and the watch house is full. There's riots in the streets and no one's going home. Captain Tilden's gone and Coates gets aggressive as Vimes takes young Sam into the yard for some training. Just as Coates reveals his history with Keel, the watch receive news that a new captain's incoming. Vimes swears the watchman in for real and draws a line that Coates won't cross. It's time to keep the peace. Vimes doesn't know where history's going, so he closes his eyes and follows the cobblestones to the time monks. The Garden of Inner Tranquility is revolving around him, and Lutze promises that proof of the future is coming. Back at the watchhouse, Captain Rust is in charge. Barricades are being built and the streets are ready to explode. The watchmen progress out into the streets and meet Red Shoe, ready to lay down his life for Whalebone Lane. Vimes despairs until explosions abound, while Vetinari heads out to look around, and dancing monks deliver hope in the form of a silver cigar case. Vimes knocks Rust down and takes charge of the barricades to keep the peace. More are joining the peaceful places, but Cable Street's in with them and it's time to unseat the unmentionables. There's anger in the cells, blood on the floor, and swings gone for good in the Cable Street conflagration. And yeah, I've skipped over that section a little bit. (laughs) Vetinari's dodging guards and overlooking the palace. The barricades are spreading out and getting metaphysical as Reg oversees the formation of a glorious republic. Meanwhile, the army's commanders are off at a party, and the major left in the field is hoping for calm, until he gets a visit from Carter, who suggests Treacle Mine Road might present a problem. Helicopters and loincloths. Mm. Uh, we've got a flag waved beautifully by Red Shoe, which I feel can cover our helicopter. We've got various missiles as well. Plenty of missiles. I 
struggled a bit with with loincloths because the only one I could really think of was the fact that the torturer is naked from the waist down, but I don't really want to give it to him. So uh, we've been in the shonky shop, and there were mentions of like greasy suits and things. There's probably a loincloth in there somewhere. There's probably one of Conan's old loincloths in the shonky shop somewhere. Let's give it to that. All right, <laughs> Conan Cohen. Maybe Conan as well. We don't know. We we Maybe don't know Conan. all the adventurers. Maybe one of Hrun's loincloths is yes. lurking in the shonky shop. Oh man, if uh, if Discworld had like an influencer culture, Fran would be able to sell his loincloths like Belle Delphine sold her bathwater. <laughs> that's I know pop culture. <laughs> that's not a thought. I, that's not what I wanted to think about. <laughs> Before we move on, Death is here as well. Uh, yeah, in a sinister role, more lurking so in the hearts of men. He does. He lurks there. Speaking as a feminist, I'm quite offended. Death also lurks in the heart of me. Yeah, yeah. But maybe he doesn't know what darkness lies there. Maybe it's only men he knows the darkness. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Your that's your fine. terrors are incomprehensible even to an anthropomorphic personification of death, is what I'm saying. Oh, okay, yeah, no, I accept Brackets that. compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Quotes. Do you want to go first? I'm not yes. sure who's first. I'll go first because your one is iconic as well, so even if it is later. Yeah, uh, sorry, I, I, oh, I no, didn't no. plan first, so I get no. the iconic one. One of the hardest lessons of young Sam's life had been finding out that the people in charge weren't in charge. It had been finding out that governments were not, on the whole, staffed by people who had a grip, and that plans were what people made instead of thinking. It's that last bit in particular, I must say. Plans were what people made instead of thinking. That is a horribly insightful sentence. Good grief. Oh, no. (laughs) I may have picked the iconic quote, but your quote sums up a lot of what I'm going to end up talking about throughout this episode. Nice. Some people might have heard this before. Well, Reg, tomorrow the sun will come up again, and I'm pretty sure that whatever happens, we won't have found freedom, and there won't be a whole lot of justice, and I'm damn sure we won't have found truth. But it's just possible that I might get a hard-boiled egg. Ah, yeah. Such a good moment. It is. There's a lot of good quotes in this, actually. Uh, I could a lot quite of happily, the iconic ones. I could quite happily just sit and read the whole thing aloud, but I feel like that is not what our podcast is and would also get us in trouble with the actual publishers of Terry Pratchett's books. Yeah, no, I think copyright law is fairly clear on that one. This is not an unauthorised audiobook. It is a discussion. Yes. So, characters. Should we start with Sam? Yes. As you call him, apparently. Our friend Sam. Oh, poor Sam. What a day, or three. He's definitely having a fucking day. I think one of the most interesting moments he has actually comes quite early on in this section, when he's kind of realising what he could do in the future but can't do here. He's thinking about, you know, how big can he really let this go? It's not like he Mm. could go and arrest Winder. Yeah, yeah. But he's thinking the fact that one day in the future he will arrest Vetinari. Yeah. And it's this sort of weird background of futility that keeps getting forgotten in favour of hope. Like Yeah, it's it's the feeling you get when you read a book you love for like the millionth time and something horrible happens in the book, but there's a part of you that's like, maybe it won't happen this time. Yeah. <laughs> Is that except obviously far more traumatic and <laughs> I'm really glad you said that because I had an analogy of how it felt like that was much dumber. Can I hear it? I'll cut it out if you really want. (laughs) Oh, no, it was just um, I wanted like absolutely background noise, nothing TV on last weekend. So I ended up rewatching like a whole season of RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars, specifically season two, for those who know. And every time I really hope that 
Roxy goes home instead of Alyssa because Alyssa deserved to be in the final over Roxy. And then every time Detox eliminates Alyssa and... It's the same analogy, just a different medium. But it's not fair. (laughs) Kind of riffing off that, actually. Vimes as made up of other people is kind of highlighted here as well. So we talked about, I think, last week about how like Carrot made a lot of impact on Vimes. And here it's kind of explicit when it said even a few years ago, Vimes wouldn't have bothered with the oath. And we see the moment where Carrot does it and Vimes like, oh. Um, Shit, that actually really does mean something, doesn't it? We also get like another weirdly influential person in his life mentioned. We get two grins, Gussie. Um, Oh, yeah, that was one of my favourite quotes in this action as well. He'd fight the man next to him simply as a substitute for kneeing the whole universe in the groin. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and yeah, it just made me think about how like, especially now you get to see early Sam Vimes, how built up of other people he is. You've got Keel, obviously, you've got Gussie and I'm sure a million other street fighters. You've got uh, Carrot, you've got Sybil, obviously. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's like the ultimate getting to watch character development with Vimes. Willikins as well. I feel like mm-hmm. he's an underrated part of the formation of Vimes's character, like not just for helping Vimes navigate the sort of society waters he's found himself in, but for being quite a grounding influence. Yeah. Like yeah. I feel like there's something about knowing that your butler once tore a man's ear off with his teeth that that helps keep you grounded. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not somewhere I've been personally, but yeah, sure. Well, yeah, but I feel like we can all relate. And I love that. I love how we're all made up of, of parts of other people. I think that's people, great. places and things. People, places and things. Animal, Nouns. vegetable, mineral, uh <laughs> metaphysical. Let's not I am the very model of a modern major general. I am the very model of a metaphysical ge- No, it doesn't scan. Damn it. I am the very model of a major metaphysical. Okay. There we go. <laughs> um, let's not go down that path. At least last time we were seeing musicals on the podcast, it was relevant to this fucking book. <laughs> you get some of Vimes' cynicism that he's he's trying to keep his own cynicism alive mm. because he, he can't get his hopes up. Like He knows he's talking to people who are going to die, as he says to the monks. He says to Ned, don't put your trust in revolutions. They always come around again. That's why they're called revolutions. Yeah. And you can see he's not really telling Ned that so much as he's reminding himself. Yeah. Because it's just after that, he hits that point where he's so completely lost. He's almost literally collapsing. Yeah. With how adrift he feels standing there with Rust next to the barricade, which is when all the monks turn up and throw the cigar case at him. Yeah. I mean, how could you... How could you keep that in mind while having to moment by moment play out a situation that is, it's, and it's not like he's done it before. He's lived it before, but through a completely different perspective. And obviously yeah. the events even were slightly different. So it's not like you can't, he's still having to think through every moment. And it feels like it's only after a thing has happened, you realize how it matches up, except in Cable Street where he's like, well, Keel got out. And then he's like, yeah, but. You've been fucking around a bit, haven't you? So there's no guarantee. I feel like that's the only moment he's kind of ahead of his laid out plot. Yeah, very much so. And it's the moment he finds the cigar case and it's described as he no longer felt like a drifting ship. Now he felt the tug of the anchor pulling him around to face the rising tide. Mm. That's a that's a lot of good metaphor in here. Right? Similarly, I guess that one. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, then he keeps working with his younger self, and you wonder how much of it is because he's trying to do what Keel did specifically, and how much of it is just he really wants his younger self to not be such a twerp. Yeah, and not die. Um, and not die. The 
I, I get he did another lovely moment like the walking next to walking with himself thing, which was he reached out to steady himself. Yeah, yeah, I was like ah, nice, love that. And there's the moment where he's taking him out in the training yard and he's trying to get young Sam to come at him, and young Sam's hesitating, and Vibes thinks to himself, "Well, I wasn't entirely stupid." Mm. And the moment, I think, where he's not as sympathetic as perhaps you might expect when young Sam comes to him crying after seeing what he saw at Cable Street. And then he takes yeah. him through the worst of it as well. And it's like the temptation to like let him go must have been so strong, but then you're not going to end up you. Because yeah. if there's a formative fucking moment, it's going to be that, isn't it? Yeah, and the way he talks about the beast and, re- and you know, tame yeah. it, it'll come when yeah. you call. Yeah. Push it down, push it down, yeah. He's almost seeing this thing that he's carried in himself the entire time. Mm. being formed in young Sam now and if you think that anger that ability to lose control was such a huge part of what he went through in the fifth elephant yeah it's never spelled out well it is a couple times but there's not as much spelling out as you might think of which of these things Keel also said two volumes in the first timeline yeah very much which is interesting yeah so young Sam is wow (laughs) right I feel so bad when they were calling him simple (laughs) and finds he's simple the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor kid. He doesn't deserve that. No. But yeah, the first the first moments of the anger that Elder Vimes will feel definitely yeah. becoming apparent there. Watching that be born there, it, it makes Vimes even more of an incredible character because now you see how much formed where yeah. Vimes got to where he was. Like I talked last week about Vi- yeah. the Vimes at the beginning of Guards Guards, who's Oh, there it is. Young Sam watching him. Young Sam with his bright, shiny badge and face full of strangeness. Like, watching that and knowing exactly what's going on behind the eyes must be very odd. Yeah. More of that later, maybe. But for now... Should we talk about Ned Coates? Our dark horse. Who gets this kind of... Like, he's almost being built as a villain. Like, obviously, he's not a villain. He's antagonist. Yeah. But you have this wonder about how much to suspect him, which builds up to, I think, one of the best like reveal moments, which is when he's fighting Vimes in the yard. Oh, I, know. I nearly had that whole bit as my quote, but I decided I couldn't whisper into a microphone for that long. Vimes saying, where do you learn all this stuff anyway? And his response, Sergeant Keel, Sarge. And then before anything else can happen, someone else interrupts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> And just that moment of like, wow, you could have like blown his cover at any time. You decided not to, I'm guessing A, because you wanted to see how it played out. B, because you didn't want to draw attention to yourself either. But just that, imagine being able to keep quiet for that long about that. That's amazing. But imagine how weird it must have been for Coates, the way he's suspecting Sam, what he's suspecting Sam of. Mm. Mm. And his fury when he realises that Vimes effectively is on the same side of him but isn't going about it the way Ned would and he's yeah. he's so upset you know you were talking about when he calls Vimesy simple mm. but he's talking about the fact you know you're going to get these guys killed yeah yeah and he, yeah and he is kind of it's this reminder that we've got characters who theoretically aren't going to make it like we started the book with the gravestones yeah and the it, it's all, it's not a callback but it makes you think a lot of the really profound bit in Jingo where the um, the reminder imp? Oh, the disorganizers talk, going disorganizer, off. Thank you. To uh, reels off the death toll, and yeah. like if I'm undone this, and I imagine I can imagine in his head he's thinking, I know shit things going to happen, but if I don't, what's the what's the list of names going to be? Yeah, 
especially because that alternative history in Jingo, the bits we see of, they are barricades in the streets. I feel yeah. like that's the, a seed planted there that Pratchett got to like explore massively here. Mm. Yeah. Uh, moving on to less likable characters. The Honourable Ronald Rust, brackets, ugh. I love that he discussed you that much. We've got a brackets, ugh, for him. And we, I don't, I'm not sure we've ever had that <laughs> for any of the many villains. <laughs> I'm sure I've I've put bracketed yeah. comments about. I actually did check uh, the show notes for Jingo to check if I put brackets ugh in the Jingo show notes for oh, really? Rust. I could <laughs> have sworn I did, but apparently I didn't. But yeah, so so we met Rust in Jingo as this incompetent commander, and obviously in the original version when Baby Sam went through this, it wasn't Rust, but he's changed enough things, and it's oh lord, it's Rust this time round. Mm-hmm. An interesting moment as well, where you can't even remember. Me- Remember, remember the original officer there. I like how that's just kind of all right. Not important. <laughs> Completely what irrelevant. The fuck is this? Oh no! <laughs> now we've got this guy, and while I might not remember the original officer and how Keel dealt with it, I know how I deal with Lord Rust, and it involves a fist. Yeah, love the uh, the underlining of the simplicity of some officers, though. Where um, he gets to what was it? option inserted into his head to just assume he'd been there we go yes rust inserted this into his range of options it was a way out and suited his opinion of the watch in general meant he hadn't been cheap by a constable merely dealt with a simpleton that's a very witch's way of thinking isn't it it's like just let him believe this yeah it's fine <laughs> and it's also the, 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 the line frost nearly formed on rust's forehead <laughs> well, <laughs> that's such i've never heard that um that metaphor before but it just gives a perfect like botox analogy doesn't it yeah <laughs> no it's incredible i'm um, that section also wins for when all the squad are lined up for rust to inspect them and the shortest one is described as uh, having been accused of navelling because he wasn't tall <laughs> enough to eyeball <laughs> it is beautiful but then like he, he he shows himself up as not just being a shitty officer but like a one of the shitty officers that gets lots and lots of people killed because yeah. he says fire over the barricade mm-hmm. and if that had been another captain under him an- another sergeant under him then a lot of people would everything have would have got much worse again yeah exactly um, and we saw him behaving like that in Jingo as well mm. he was yes. the one that nearly starved a bunch of his own men to death by insisting that they could take a particular route I believe yeah that's right yeah but yeah, so after all of this, when he was in charge of a regiment and did a shit job, he then gets to do it again later on. But yeah, I have got—I haven't put them in as characters, but the, the two majors that we're dealing with it towards the end of this section in the tent, who are kind of just quietly Major hoping and things captain. calm down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've got—I've got a lot of sympathy for them. I like them as characters because they're sat there going, "God, we shouldn't be fucking doing this. What the fuck is this shit?" Absolutely. Um. Well, I. A, I thought that was just like a lovely moment of like repersonalizing them, and and you also got that with the 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 other captain who was like not too much of a dick to Vimes, and was like I don't, I don't think there's anything actually revolutionary about singing your own national anthem. Uh, that doesn't yeah. sound right to me. Um, but furniture's just there because people are spring cleaning. Clearly, <laughs> yeah. And then when one of them hears about rust being taken out, he goes, "Rust," he said. "Oh dear, that's a blow." I dare say the man is dead, said Carter, and the Major tried not to look slightly more cheerful. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is a good moment. 
Um, oh yeah, so speaking of revolutionaries and waving from barricades, red shoe. Mm. Death to some of the fascist oppressors. Oppressors? Oppressors. The fascist oppressors. Um, so have we, because we've met Red Shoe before, obviously, have we talked about his name before? If we have, I've forgotten, so please tell me. Uh, this is not a piece of research I did. I happened to spot this post in the Discworld subreddit like two minutes before we started recording. I love that. <laughs> um, footwear is a big thing for revolutionaries throughout modern history. There was a famous um, leader during the Mexican Revolution called Zapata, which means shoe, um, and he's still kind of an icon in Mexico. Um, the word sabotage comes from French because French workers used to wear a type of wooden clog called a sabot, uh, un sabot. Oh. Uh, and workers would use them to jam up machinery. Throwing a shoe is still seen as a revolutionary act. Um, so sabotage, vandalism with footwear, harnessed to a revolutionary event. Hmm. Joseph Stalin's father and grandfather were also both cobblers. That might just be a coincidence, but you know. There's a cobbler in this going on about the on the other side. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if that was somewhat intentional. And they also point out the parallels with Life of Brian. There's a character called Reg who's parallels a lot of the talking points of the Socialist Workers' Party yeah. and the Workers' Revolutionary Party. Yeah. And then later in the film, you've also got Cleese playing Arthur who finds founds the Order of the Shoe because Brian lost a sandal. Ha, yes. Very good. Love so, it. yeah, some fun referencey stuff there. But yeah, yeah I, I love Reg so much as a character. He's... You feel a lot of pity for him because he's, and also at the same time, I'm very annoyed by him because I've met him a lot of times and I think I probably was him. As yeah, the, I think... the kind of revolutionary who feels very hard that this is the right thing to do, but if questioned on even one aspect of detail, is like um, the strength of the feeling there. It's definitely driving him forward, unfortunately, and not in any productive direction, nor no. along with any of the other secret cells. Oh yeah, I love this moment of um, he's really hopeful that uh, Vimes has got secret files on him. Bet you've got a massive file on me. Yeah, um, not quite a mile, no. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the revolutionary cells that don't know about each other, and poor Reg being this kind of cell of one that they don't know about. Yeah, now Vimes just eventually like laying him off the hook. It's like, ah, oh, oh, you're a secret, you're a secret operator. All right, well, we better keep you. Well, we can keep an eye on you then, eh? All right. <laughs> I also like that he's just dressed like the characters and name is. Yeah, the frilly, the <laughs> frilly shirt of the revolutionary. And now, now I've watched the show Ghost, so I'm kind of imagining him as like the Victorian in that. What's oh, the poet. Jobs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in the he tone be, of voice. <laughs> I know we've got mostly a no fan casting rule, but he would be the perfect actor yeah. for Red Shoe. <laughs> he's um, going to be reading you know they're doing all the new audiobooks at the moment mm. he's going to be reading the truth well there you go good to know good to know he's in well he, he must be interacted by now even if he wasn't before i would be very surprised if all those people from horrible histories are not also quite into pratchett yeah there's got to be a lot of overlap that's a lot of sense of humor overlap certainly but from Red Shoe, we do get the discussion over this kind of formation and the ideals that they're arguing over putting in reasonably priced love because the seamstresses don't want to put free love, which is, I think, many people's favourite Discworld joke. <laughs> it, uh, genuinely considering like the truth, freedom, reasonably priced love thing as a tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's one of those ones I've heard so many times now that I kind of forget how funny it was the first time. Yep. But yeah, when you read it back in context, like... Huh. <laughs> 
and uh, the joys of again, I haven't given them their own bit, but Mrs. Rutherford and husband joining in these oh, yes, grand yes, yes. declarations with the realism, such as better sewers and something done about the rats. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> It's a very nice Terry Pratchett thing to pit the uh, very blatant realism against the high ideal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is like the apex of that concept, this old book. And it's it's not mean. It's not mocking Reg's ideals. No. no, because he's making, at the end of the day, the same mistake Ned Coates is. He's just doing it in a slightly more flamboyant and less well-connected way. But Ned Coates is making almost exactly the same mistake and thinking that his revolution is going to change the world for the better and i mean maybe it does a bit but you know it's not Probably him who went to set fire much. to the viper's nest so no uh speaking of the viper's nest we the get the <laughs> we get the end of captain swing yay good uh yeah <laughs> he's so swing is like obviously cast as the big bad guy of the book but swing is very much built up as an antagonist in this and i know obviously it's it's us who arbitrarily divided this into sections but he's taken off the board like a long way before the end of the book yes yes he is and that again as as an apex of a practitian thing i would say this book is very much the there are lots of endings in this book this is definitely an ending of a sort this is an ending of the 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 worst part of the government perhaps um although of course if like more things didn't change it could just be rebuilt Mm -hmm. i thought that the fight scene at the end was particularly interesting in that he's having this long argument with vimes using a lot of points that have been repeated by fascist governments through the ages you must understand that in times of national emergency we cannot be too concerned with the so-called rights of this and that and it's a very interesting thing because it almost seems like he's an avatar of that kind of government, of that kind of corruption, because there's no point in arguing this with Vimes. And no. he must know that at the time. But Pratchett has written him in as this kind of anthropomorphic personification of this concept. He's just this attitude incarnate. And it must yeah. be very satisfying to slit his throat. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> what's the other line he's got? History needs its butchers as well as its shepherds. Oh, yeah, <laughs> And that's another weighted thing because obviously he's talking about how uh, the actions taking place at this time will be remembered whereas obviously for Vimes this is him living his own history yeah yeah and ugh. and also and f- yeah no, a nice demonstration of how just deluded people can be when thinking of how history will remember them uh, exactly or their side of the argument or whatever it is I'm sure I'm as guilty of it as anyone else but sometimes you do read a bit of history and think like he thought he was the goody Ooh. Yeah. Are we the baddies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as as you know, Joanna, we've decided not to have uh, skulls on our headphones for this reason. Yep. Oh, yep. That's actually That'll a thing, us. isn't it? That could be a brand decision. Um, what are they <laughs> called? Skull candy? Are they headphones? That sounds right. Yeah, yeah. They're the expensive ones, yeah. Yeah, but they also do the cute ones with cat ears. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, right, if we're, we're going to be the baddies, we need cat ears. There we go. That's the conclusion. Cool. Um, right. <laughs> Feline themed evil, probably no fascism. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Just planning oh, on man, we're just going back to Tumblr. Right. Um, no, no, Sorry, um, killing swing, um, slitting his throat with the ruler. Um, mm. Because we were talking about with Vimes and young Vimes, telling him to leash the beast and it'll come where you call. What's kind of an impressive in that death scene is Vimes is so incredibly impassive about it. This is not him killing passionately or through rage. This yeah. is him surgically removing a cancer. Yeah, it is the, the beast channeled very specifically he's learned how to 
release it like like steam in tiny yeah. little bursts. Yeah. This is not an emotional act. This is an act of surgery and doing what needs yeah. to be done. This is becoming like an engine of anger rather than just a yeah, very much cardboard so. box. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Casa. Yeah. Um, not in it much in this one, is he? No, we've section. just got the scene with him at the end of the They're section. With the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, walking out smoke blackened. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and just being the most insubordinate little twerp. Proper little shit. being because, terrifying. Because he knows that the coming from Cable Street being an unmentionable carries enough weight to keep going with these soldiers. But while he's he's terrifying and he's intimidating, they're also just completely disgusted by him. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, the, these might be more humanised, less NPC-like people. These are the people that don't want to be chasing people through the streets as cavalry. But there's still this huge element of classism. Part of the reason they're disgusted by Carter is that he's incredibly unsettling. Yeah. But part of it is also just, God, what a scruffy little loik above his station. Yeah. Is it now? Now, I agree that a lot of this is about classism, but is it classism to be annoyed if someone walks into your office and puts their feet up on your desk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not classism. But, yeah, but yeah. No, I'm there sure is there is definitely in there. But <laughs> They're as disgusted by his lack of manners yes, they as are. they are yeah, by the fact that he's clearly a raging psychopath. Yeah. No, yeah, it's the end of the sentence, isn't it? It's the nice little Pratchett thud as well. It's the, he's this and that and this, that and the other, slightly longer description. And he was mad. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. He does like the reverse list thing. Because yeah. um, we've talked about before, haven't we? How um, like in rhetorical situations, lists usually end with the longest one. Mm-hmm. I feel and like yeah. Pratchett makes very good use of the uh, reversing that expectation when he's describing Casa. Absolutely. Um, and I can imagine absolutely wanting to stab him after he pulls <laughs> out the handkerchief and buffs the desk once he's taken his feet off it. Yeah. Oh, God. Ugh. Uh, oink, he is an oink. Um, last one, not so much a character as a concept. Oh. Uh, <laughs> You're like the person at the end of the presentation, like, any questions? Not a question so much as a statement. <laughs> I have sworn never to actually become that person. Thank you. We've got this podcast to get rid of that urge in us both. <laughs> For the um, Irmob, yes, that's a good character. I like that. The uh, mob, and I was going to talk more about the um, the tension building up, but I feel like we'll get more into it later. But and Morpork's famous uh, mob, the state you got just before a real mob happened, mm. it spread across the city like web and spider. And when some triggering event happened, twanged its urgent message through the streets. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the the tension built there is incredible. Like, if you have any particular notes on that, please go ahead. We can tie it back in. It's um, just incredible. Uh, there's another line a few pages later about the thunderstorm sensation of tensions building up, waiting yeah. for the first little thing. Mm-hmm. Just imagining that feeling of being around this group of people, and it's yeah. not going to be one person, it's not going to be one thing, but it's going to happen. Yeah. And the kind of foreshadowing of tonight the streets would explode and the explanation of one yeah. shot that does it. Yeah. The uh, d- Just occurred to me, as you were saying, like being around the groups of people and it wouldn't be one. It just reminds me of what we were talking about with the racking almost, like the idea of like the hive mind is very unsettling. The idea that you would have to deal with all of these minds at once, working as kind of a as a, a um a channel for a general feeling instead of as individual sentient minds. Yeah. Scary. And there's another moment talking about after the shot is fired, 
um, that reminded me of Morris. Uh, all the little rules break down, and when that happened, humans were worse than sheep. Sheep just ran. They didn't try and bite the sheep next to them. Now, that's interesting. I highlighted that as well because I slightly disagree with it there. Um, and I know that's a very common uh, concept of like of, of how people are. People in, in disaster situations are awful. When things break down, everyone goes to shit. And I probably ranted before about how I don't think that's really true. People no, are I a lot better than, bias. Yeah, than people give them credit for. Yeah. Um, generally, after a disaster, after things break down, people are very nice to each other on the whole. Um, <laughs> it's generally when officials come in and start fucking about that things go wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah. No, I, it's not so much I agree or disagree with it as it reminded me of mm. the whole thing in Morris about okay. the rats breaking and running away. Mm. And this, uh, when it all comes down to it, we're just rats moment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Although, um, briefly on this um, society breaking down thing, it's conversation. I've been listening to a lot of conversations about this because the Last of Us TV series just started, and obviously I've listened to a million podcasts about it. Oh, how's the TV series? Uh, first episode is really good. I think it's going to be a really good show, and I like when Pedro Pascal exists. So, how I'm scary pleased. is that? Um, can, I, can I watch this? Yes, but there are a couple of um, moments that will make you go, ah. Okay. Well, I'll be watching with Jack because he likes the game. So. Oh yeah, no, you'll yeah, be fine okay. then. Uh, do you know, know if there you... are spoilers for the second game because he hasn't played that yet <laughs> no the first series is going to be the first game all right, and then the second series is going to be the second game perfect all right i'll give them to anyway. that's an amazon one isn't it uh no it's now cv let me know if you want my login oh, okay cool thanks um <laughs> but the reason this reminded me of this is that um last of us does what uh, a lot of zombie stories do which is it's less about the zombie itself it's the danger of society and what happens when society breaks down mm. and the danger that starts coming from other people and uh, and you know, a lot of them go into this idea of the problem is when officials come into play, like you said, taking advantage of a disaster situation to create some kind of fascist government, like in mm -hmm. The Last of Us. Yeah. Or, or just by hugely underestimating people. Like there's been um, a, examples of huge disasters where the people who are still in the city or the area afterwards set up things like relief kitchens and just mutual aid stuff. And then the military come in, destroy what they've done and set up something much worse. Yeah. Very much um, so. The, the idea of private property is always far more uh, defended by the incoming people than by the people who just watch their city get destroyed and they're like, no, it's fine, take it. Like, yeah, <laughs> please use this. Yeah, the, the kind of the demonization of the idea of looters, not even of looters, like, the you know, obviously New Orleans and all that. Yeah. There's another, there's a fantastic and awful, because it's awful to listen to, but it is wonderfully done series on um, Hurricane Katrina, actually, that I'll link to if I remember. Um, but anyway, sorry, I'm going completely off track. No, we both went wildly off topic there. Um, what else did I even have in the plan? Oh, locations, the the People's Republic of Treacle Wine Road, um, which I just want to shout out as obviously being kind of where we're going to spend a lot of the rest of this book. Now, remind me, are we... This is this is sprouted off the original Whalebone Lane, hasn't it? Yes. Yes, okay. I need a map. We're going to have to get out a map. There's one in the book. I have the, oh, I have the ebook. Is the map? Um, that's probably right at the end then. Oh, yeah. I don't know if the map's in the ebook, but in the paperback, you get. Um, I'm just going to hold this up to the screen, but you have a map of Oak Moorpork that's uh, titled as the Glorious Republic of oh, Trickle yeah. Wine Road. Oh, no, it's right in the beginning. I just must have skipped past it because I was trying to get to the words. Yes, good. Yeah. Right. So you can that's sit just... and work out like where all the barricades and stuff are. It's great fun. Cool. But we probably shouldn't do that live. No, on no the podcast not while we're recording. No, yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's right. But yeah, it's a, a new, old new location. 
old new location. Uh, that's where the barricades have started. But mm. as as I, as I hinted, metaphysics is going to come into play. Have we not? Uh, we're not doing Viper's Nest Cable Street headquarters as a location. Too depressing. Talk about it a uh, bit later. Too depressing. So we can talk about it a little bit later. But that is one of my favourite lines in the book, as he realises Cable Street's in behind the barricades with them, and says, "Well, that's like pitching your tent over a nest of vipers." Yes. And again, that's he knows it. it's happened. He knows it would have happened, but he, you still can't help reacting in the moment. Nope. Very cool. Very good. So little bits we liked. Uh, we got some setup and payoff. We do. We've got a couple of those. Um, I expect, again, as you said, there's loads of those in here. So I just thought I'd pick a couple of nice ones that were already pretty settled by now. Um, when uh, Fred Cullen says something like, are we going to be taking the law into our own hands? And Vime says, yes, Fred. Only this time we're going to squeeze. Going back to the story he told about the man in the bar who had a handful, handful of glass. Of glass. Yep. yep. Very Thank good. you for that Very reminder. Nice. <laughs> Uh, there's also the bit, and it's not quite as blatant a one, but I uh, think it's still definitely there, where Vimes being shocked about how Marilyn was treated at the start kind of sets up for how much of a twat Rust is and how much we know that when like, um, when he comes in and asks for Marilyn to be turfed out, yeah, asks for the stable to be emptied. Because you always that's always a good way to show how much of a bastard someone is being mean to animals. But yeah. it's on top of that, something that like... Vimes has already sorted and shown he feels strongly about. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was just a nice little two. Yeah. Just picked picked two. <laughs> There's another one as well. Uh, ah. Nobby gets his spoon. Oh, he does get his spoon, yeah. He's reminiscing at the beginning about Keel giving him his first spoon, and then here it is Snouty trying to not have Nobby take the spoon and Vimes shouting, He can keep the damn spoon. Spoons are not important at this moment. Yes. There's <laughs> another nice moment where someone's got this fond memory of Keel and then you find out the actual motivation, you know, with Dibbler and eating the pie, it was to get the password. And with uh, Nobby and the spoon, it's just trying to get Snouty to go away for a minute. The <laughs> way he treats Nobby, actually, I think is very sweet throughout because Nobby is a very endearing character despite his general scruffiness. Um, yeah, it's like there's a bit about like his sleeve being a concertina effect that kind of there's a salute there. I think there's a salute there. That looks right. <laughs> but a couple of bits that made me laugh about Nobby were um, when when he's uh, sneaking up on Vimes each time. There's always another little adjective describing him. Uh, the two I particularly liked. It's like uh, came a sticky voice and uh, <laughs> came a glutinous voice, which I thought was rather good. <laughs> and finally, yeah, my mum says I'm insidious. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that in. That's one of my favourite lines. Uh, proper makes me laugh out loud. My mum says I'm insidious. That sounds right, Nobby. Yeah, good job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and he becomes an acting member of the watch and carves himself a badge out of soap. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, and then like underlining again the fact like he's eaten candles like a little rat. Like, oh, poor, poor fella. Oh, anyway, you've snuck a you've snuck a time travel one in here. I have. This is Luke talking to Vimes and he's explaining history finds a way. It's like a shipwreck. You're swimming to the shore. The waves will break, whatever you do. But then he says, and when I did the original read-through of this, I was mm. so excited I sent you a screenshot. Is it not written, the big sea does not care which way the little fishes swim? Yes. We've heard that before, haven't we? We have heard that before, Duana. Now, where have we heard that before? I feel like it might be linked to the short story, The Sea and Little Fishes. I think you might be right. (laughs) 
but it was it was a saying that like I think Terry Pratchett said in the intro to see in Little Fishes, he was sure he'd heard that somewhere, but not sure where. But he's resurrected. It's obviously too good a line to be left as a short story, so he's managed to get it back in here. But um, I'm going to throw in some fun headcanon, which is that Lute Zay's Is It Not Written's mostly come from the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite. Therefore, yeah. has Mrs. Cosmopolite ever met Nanny Og? And is Mrs. Cosmopolite something of a city witch? Well, yes, I think definitely that bit. Yeah. Also, I'm getting her mixed up with Mrs. Cake a bit in my head. That's fair. Tell in the very first couple of books, one it was Mrs. Cake who predicted the city burning down and ran away, wasn't it? Not Mrs. Yes. Cosmopolite. Yeah. Right? Okay. In equal rights, did Granny stay with Mrs. Cosmopolite or was that again Mrs. Cake? I can't remember. No, Granny stayed with Mrs. Cake. Is that right? I'm pretty sure because she's got the precognition. Right. Right. Yes. Yes, that's it. Okay, good. Okay, yes, because I was thinking, if not, that might be how that phrase got to her. Oh, quite possibly. But no, it could okay. have been Mrs. No, no. They probably hang out though. That will be the coven of city witches, Mrs. Cake, Mrs. Cosmophilite, and one secret other one. Yeah. <laughs> um. Actually, I think there is another one, but we haven't met them yet. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I was just excited to see another ref- uh, a seeing little fishes mm. moment in this. Absolutely. It's very good. And but using that in a completely different way. Because it's very much not the same sentiment as the big sea not caring which way the little fishes swim in the short story. Yeah, no, actually, yeah. Quite right. Anyway. Just goes to show, doesn't it? As uh, as the way of Mrs. Cosmopolis. Is it, not, Is it written? not written? It just goes to show. <laughs> I have actually I don't think I've linked this in show notes before. The, the wiki.lspace.org has a list of all of the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite. Is it not written? That I Excellent. was going to take for myself if I couldn't find it. So I'm glad somebody did. Is it not written? If you keep going all cosmic on me, you'll feel the end of my broom and no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've mentioned before on the podcast that I really like and no mistake, which is... And no uh, mistake. Yeah. A, a bit of a patriotism. <laughs> I might start using that more. Right, um, mm. the end of Lord Greville Pipe. The author of the Tiger Book was eaten by a tiger. What a genius Lord Winstanley Greville Pipe had been. What an observer. Havelock would love to have met him or even to have visited his grave, but apparently that was inside a tiger somewhere, which, to Greville Pipe's gratified astonishment, he hadn't spotted until it was too late. Gratified astonishment. <laughs> and then followed by Vetinari um hiding the last extant copies of the book within a um Anecdotes of the Great Accountants, Volume Three. Perfect. <laughs> Which uh, Lord uh Greville Pipe would have appreciated. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um and then Dark Sarcasm. Oh, uh this is me being proud of myself for getting a reference. Um <laughs> Another bad move. Dark sarcasm ought to be taught in schools, he thought. Oh, yeah. And this, I believe, is a reference to Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control, no dark sarcasm in the classroom. Oh. Hey, teacher, leave those kids alone. Yes. Well done. I did not catch that. And you're welcome, listeners. I opted not to sing it. Right. (laughs) 
we can't put it off any longer, Francine. There's some big topics to talk about in this book, right. aren't there? The confusion I think that Vimes is feeling here is really well demonstrated. That's yeah. my main talking point. I think that, as you were saying before, like the idea of having to do the job in front of you while being on this deadline, being on this like sudden deadline, um, as you say, tonight the streets would explode. He knows something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And yet you can't take time out to think properly about that. You just have to keep putting out fires as they come to you. There's nothing you can do to change it. He must be aware of that on some visceral level. And because of that, the tension is really added to by just this sense of kind of confusion and like this dichotomy in his head until, as you said, it it is kind of brought to this uh, climax right as they are at the barricades and he says, you can't take the law into your own hands. And his, his, his voice faltered. Sometimes it takes the brain a little while to catch up with the mouth. And that feels like to me the moment where he stops just going along with task by task and kind of starts acknowledging all of the pieces of the bigger picture in his head at once. And then obviously has that little breakdown and uh, <laughs> has to go to the, the streets afterwards. But I think on top of the kind of like time travel nonsense that's killing him a bit here. You've also got the fact that although there are definitely worse sides and better sides, Pratchett and through the conduit of Vimes is kind of at pains to point out that the idea of like being on the side of the people is inherently kind of difficult, (laughs) problematic. Uh, So people on the side of people of the side of the people capitalized always ended up disappointed they found that the people tended not to be grateful or appreciative or forward-thinking or obedient. And so the children of the revolution were faced with the age-old problem. It wasn't that you had the wrong kind of government, which was obvious, but that you had the wrong kind of people. And so we're kind of setting up here for a later disappointment. That stuff with the people is also a good callback to the truth, where you have the Mm. difference between the people and the people and the public interest. Yeah. And then a callback to even further, like the first real like page long rant we had of veterinaries which yeah. was in one of the earlier watch books but i can't remember which uh, <laughs> but yeah when we had that that entire thing of like veterinary being like oh wow yeah okay you have taken too many steps back from society to be normal anymore yeah which actually completely unrelated but i liked the little bit about veterinary um wearing the wrong colours, even though that was not allowed and he'd be kicked out the assassins for it, because it Mm -hmm. kind of highlighted how it's really just as fucking well he wasn't an assassin, because as has been pointed out in all like many of the Ankh Morpork books, the reason the guild system works and like the reason the assassins and the thieves are allowed to be around is that they come with these set of limitations and with handicaps in the assassin's case, like, no, you're not you're not allowed to become invisible. That's not okay. Yeah. (laughs) that's not cool that's not good i think the point is that nightwatch does this fantastic job of laying out the confusion in the same way that vimes is feeling it while at the same time not just being this annoying mismatch you are getting all of the different sides laid out at different points through either in a monologue or through somebody saying something to vimes and then perhaps just as it would be getting too much for the reader it all gets too much for vimes as well and he just gets this proper head spinning moment and you kind of get like this little mental reset mm. where you're allowed to kind of go back into the moment. Yeah, very much so. And I think that was kind of cleverly done. And and of course, one of the big problems that Vimes is having with all these kind of mental conflicts is the fact that he is kind of the, he's on the bad side as well. 
in theory. He is a yeah. policeman. And what that kind of means is something I think you've been looking at a bit. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it's interesting that once the barricades start going up and word kind of spreads around that this is the peaceful part of town, that more and more police start dropping whatever posts and whatever they're being told to do by these military commanders and come and join them. Mm. It's Sergeant Di Dickens, who's a like old policeman that's been in the force for a while that comes and joins them behind the barricades, and he's going to become a bigger part of the story in the next section. Part of the pro- not the problem this book has, but you, where you have Vimes falling down and f- trying to figure out how to be. I don't know, the good guy on the bad side or figuring out how much power he actually has because, as I mentioned, mm. he can't arrest Winder. Mm. He, he can't solve things the way he solved things in Shingo. Yeah. Um, he can't, there's no battlefield for him to arrest here. Yet. <laughs> Give him a minute. That's a good, yeah, that's a good point, actually. Like, as you were saying, when like the Major and the Captain were talking before, they underlined the lack of battlefield as well. Yeah, very much so. messy and shit. You can't run around in cavalry. And yeah, Vimes can't just walk up someone and arrest everyone there. <laughs> no. Um, and it's something else the Major and the Captain talk about is um, someone can throw a stone, but then they walk around the corner and they're an upstanding citizen again. Mm. There's no enemy in clear colours to shove your sabre at. Yeah. And the city is something they're fighting in rather than being outside and sieging, which is what they used to. But yeah, where I think it falls down in some places is, maybe not falls down, but Vimes is willing to acknowledge the unpleasant aspects of the job where he's teaching them to fight and he's encouraging Mm -hmm. them to use the street fighting, but he's also saying, and obviously definitely don't get coshes and blackjacks, which can be sold at this place, and I definitely won't show you how to use them. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing... And it would, I think it would be impossible to write this book without verging on this at some point. Absolutely not. Oh. Because although it is kind of acknowledged that all of this is shit, when it's Vimes doing it, it's always very careful to be Vimes punching up. It's Vimes going in and like destroying people in the torturer's nest. So you really can't, you really can't think that no. that's bad when you've just heard the rest of it. Or punching Lord Rust, punching which Lord Rust, we're never which not going to be okay never. with. Yeah, yeah obviously. <laughs> this podcast is pro-punching Lord Rust. Correct, yes. But yeah, it feels more okay when we see like him using this stuff against the unmentionables than when he's just advising on the youth of, because he might understand when you use a blackjack. Mm. But I'm not sure I'd trust Fred Colon with similar. Yes, exactly. And definitely not like knock or whatever. Exactly. Quirk, yeah. Which, speaking of quirk, one of the moments, you know, he um, he's frustrated when he's in the sh- sonky shop and Mister Sunshine Sun is is saying, "No, uh, I've paid protection already." And he says, and he realizes it must have been quirk, and says, "You don't have to pay coppers. We're here for your protection." Yeah, and the whole bit about coppers learning off other coppers being the problem. Yeah, if you kept learning from these, you'd go down the road of taking bribes and blah blah yeah. blah. What was it? The line they found somewhere between impossible perfection and the pit where they could be real coppers, slightly tarnished because the job did that to you, but not rotten. Yes. And he knows it, he can't hold them to the standards of, say, carrot. Yeah. <laughs> not yet. One day he will. But it ah, it's very tough. It is very tough because you get you you get the kind of moments of I think it was the last section where Vimes is like, No, I like to be in the middle. And here it's kind of shown that the police shouldn't be on the government side, shouldn't be on the army side, shouldn't necessarily be just on the people's side, but should default to that. 
or will yeah. default to that. But at the same time, you know, sometimes taking the middle ground is not there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing, like where he starts having its crisis of faith and the thing that Vimes has always put his faith in is the law. Mm until he stops and those are always the really good moments like guards guards where it was technically you know the law that they were going to sacrifice someone to the dragon but he wasn't going to let them do that because yeah. it wasn't the right thing to do yeah and here he's he's thinking about it more the city was run by a madman and his shadowy chum so where was the law yeah and this is where he takes it into his own hands a line about um being a copper only worked when people let it work yeah which is a bigger expansion on that stuff we were talking about last week with the weapons law yeah so policing by consent is a big concept in in policing i know we said we aren't going to go very into it but big discussion about that in the uk at the moment uh, even by the the couple of top brass who are at least being critical about the whole thing saying that look we're at serious risk of no longer being in the situation of being able to police by consent i think it's kind of underlined here as very much the police don't have a position of force which is good from the point of being able to be on their side it's highlighted that they only have wicker shields they don't have all the kind of riot gear of the police of modern times who make riots happen that's why it's called riot gear fun fact Uh, (laughs) and he's he mentions again that there'll be agent provocateurs yeah hanging around the place well, they, you literally had uh, unmentionables confessing to that in the last section. Oh, that's right. Yes, of course you did. We were talking about him having them take the oath and that's something that he's kind of grown from carrot. But the thing he's thinking to himself is you needed something else to tell you. It wasn't just a job. Mm. Because the people who are stepping over the line to stand with vines, the people who end up helping move the barricades and then end up behind the barricades, are not doing this for the sake of, you know, enough pay to buy a hot meal every day. Yeah. They're doing this because they've invested in it. Even if it's just because they've invested in Vimes. Vimes might have faith in the law, but a lot of them have faith in, well, Keel. But Mm. The thing is, at the end of the day, despite being maybe a little sceptical about it, Vimes does take the side of the people. Yes. Even if the people aren't the the high and mighty ideal that Reg might hold them to, Vimes can see people for what they are and still want to defend them. Exactly. Or if only the small section of the city that contains them. Which kind of takes us into the the horrifying section of the book, which is uh, hmm. le- less than ten pages long. It's really, but it's it's a difficult read. It's a difficult read, and we're talking, of course, about um, going in and taking care of Cable Street. Yeah, um, I think I, th- I think I think I'm right in saying it is the most graphic Pratchett ever gets about this stuff. There are hints in previous books about, you know, what Vimes did when he found that man who'd been kidnapping little girls or something. Yeah. But this is the first time where you get to... And again, it's all, it's still talked about in hints, isn't it? But not so yeah. much. Not so much. I mean, <laughs> as much as it's upsetting to read some of its incredibly good writing, mm. the line, um, in a strange kind of dream, he walked across the floor and bent down to pick up something that gleamed in the torchlight. It was a tooth. God, that's a moment. Something I noticed, though, when he confronts the clerk Mm. and shouts at him, and what does daddy do all day, mister? And this clerk is kind of claiming this innocence. All I did was take notes, even though what he was taking notes for was horrific. I'm just going to jump back to small gods. Okay. (laughs) Sure. That sounds right. Very very early, we see the seller of the Quisition. Ah, yes. 
Oh, and yes. it explains details like the mugs, for example, the mugs which each man had brought from home and had legends on them, like a present from the Holy Grotto of Ossoria to the world's greatest daddy, and the postcards on the wall. And it all meant this, that there are hardly any excesses of the most crazed psychopath that cannot easily be duplicated by a normal, kindly family man who just comes into work every day and has a job to do. Hmm. Yes, I'd forgotten about the Quisition cells for a minute there. That is an interesting parallel, especially as I think he left more to the in- in- imagination in that one. Very much so. And kind of got more like in this one, it's like, no, you need to understand what what's happening here. Just, oh, just, yeah, you're right. It's full of fantastic bits of writing, like the the detail about like stand to attention, Lance Constable, Shadow Vines and the straw covered ceiling drank and deaden the sound. It's just yeah. this feeling of claustrophobic dread that he manages to invoke is just awful and also fantastic obviously um you were saying i think before we were into the episode proper that you always forget about this bit like yeah it just uh, somehow my brain blanks out i think there's two ways to react to reading something that is this horrifying Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to call this dark i know pratchett kind of railed against that i can call it dark i don't care we're allowed to disagree with them sometimes i think it's dark as fuck it is fucking dark this is definitely a dark bit I think there's two reactions to reading something this dark or this visceral, especially, mm. or in a TV show, in a film, if it's something you reread or rewatch, which is either you remember it and you almost feel sick to it coming up because you know it's coming and it, and you find it a stressful watch and be, or because you remember it, you skip over it. Mm. So like Buffy watchers, I'm sure we, we have plenty of them in the listenership. Uh, Seeing Red is an episode. I know it's coming. It upsets me and I end up skipping big chunks of it, if not the entire episode. Yeah. Um. Or you have something like this where you just, because you enjoy the rest of the book so much, you block this bit out. And literally, yeah. I read this whole book two weeks ago before we started recording to prep for it, which mm. is my usual process. And I was horrified when that bit came up because I forgot how dark and bleak it was. And yeah. so, somehow I blanked it out of my brain until I read it again this week to do the post-it notes. Yeah. And it, it's not something you want to skip anyway, I'd say, un- unless like it's a particular trigger. No, it's an essential. You because yeah. you, you need to you need to understand where the rest of where some of the emotions are going to come from in the next bit. Uh, you need um, to understand why he burnt the place down. Exactly. And I think one of the best moments in this section is because uh, he's sent Fred out for the whiskey and he's obviously yes. got the whiskey to use to burn the place down to make like a Molotov cocktail type yeah. thing with. And Fred turns around after they've come out of the place again and one of them's still throwing up and young Sam is sort of broken a bit by this. And Fred just says, you know, we bought a second bottle of whiskey and they burn, use that to burn. And it was obviously he bought the second bottle for them to have a drink when yeah. this was all over with. Ben says, no, we use it. Yeah. yeah. What is going to make me feel better than a drink right now is to make this place more on burn fire. More. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that that comes from Fred is such a good choice mm. as well because Fred Colin is uh, probably, I'd say, not so much morally dubious, but he is a bit of a wanker. He is not considered one of the like deeper, yeah. more emotional ones. Yeah, well, it's like we were saying in the first section, isn't it? That's why it was so interesting when he and Nobby had that big emotional reaction at the start, and here we are again. Yeah. And now you can definitely start to see where that came from, from here. Very much so. And young Sam's reaction to all of it, especially when he says there was a woman in, la- in the last cell. Yes. And the comparison to obviously Sam Vimes reaction to it of going in and the people who had gone to places in their heads and he gave them quiet deaths, which is another really hard read, mm. but getting as many people out as he can. Yeah. And the way he's, he's doing all of this, you pointed out earlier, young Sam looking at him with his shining face and that's where he decides to 
he reigns the beast in himself and then convinces Sam to rein the beast in. Yeah. Um, Therefore giving himself the advice he'd need to take out find these swing in a minute because it all gets meta. <laughs> exactly. But also the moment when they've decided to burn it. Yeah. And young Sam says, that's why you left the torturer tied up, wasn't it? Yeah. Because Vimes has just tried to oh, teach yeah. him. No, you don't kill a man who's tied to a chair. So then Vimes feels the need to go like, and oh, rescue fuck. the torturer, yeah. <laughs> at least untie him, but gets there just in time to see Swing kill him. Yeah. Which at least means we don't have to see him be saved. But um <laughs> No. But, yeah, the the beast thing actually kind of ties together your two things on this because there's a great line where he's talking about the badge being important and it like being shield shaped. Mm-hmm. Um and there's kind of a running theme through the watch books and highlighted here with Coates actually where he does not like giving up his badge he wants that no. badge even when he doesn't like doesn't like being a watchman he's sick of the whole fucking thing he's about ready to kick Betnari out the window he clings to his badge do you remember the scene and now I'm struggling to remember which book it is but where he's basically men at arms yeah when he's holding it it's, it's the last one he's drunken yeah, and he's yeah. gripping the badge so tightly it's it's ensued mm. to his hand. And it's it's I think it's when Vetinari does the shit he doesn't didn't punch the wall. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, oh fuck, go find him. <laughs> Misjudged that one slightly. Whoops. And yeah, and it's mentioned here actually that um it's stuck by the badge except for that time when even that hadn't been enough and it's stuck by the bottle instead. And there's gotta be this whole like he's watching young Sam goes through this and he's doing what he can but at the same time he's like this is going to fuck you up so badly you're going to become like a chronic alcoholic for a while sorry dude yeah and and he's not stopping it there's nothing he really he's trying to change the bigger picture of history but he's not trying to do anything to fix himself apart from make sure himself gets the beginning of the lessons yeah otherwise uh what what happens if he if he sorts himself out and never meets Sybil at that time and yeah that's not gonna yeah, he needs his and I'm not sure if he's hole. thinking about that as explicitly as that. Maybe he's just thinking like, I can't really make this any better, can I? Like, <laughs> I have also been damaged by this. Can you can you fix yourself? Absolutely not. No. No. Anyway, um, but what the if whole I can thing. Bit? Yeah. <laughs> so the thing with the badge being shield shaped, he's thinking of the badge as almost this shield between him and the beast. Mm. This is the badge is what reminds him to keep the peace. This is the way the oath is the reminder that this is more than just a job. Yeah, but you also have the Cable Street particulars who don't have visible badges. The badge shields them from the law. They put themselves yeah. above it, and the badge is, is their barrier between the law and themselves. Yes, and in a certain sense, as they put themselves above the law, they put themselves above a certain uh, level of morality. You know, the clerk tries to justify his behaviour with, "I just took notes," even though he knows he's taking notes for a torturer. It's I was only doing my job versus this is so much more than just a job is the really clever dichotomy that Pratchett's presenting here. And I don't think the way he writes police is, you know, something that we would consider perfect in a one day, but he has the benefit of it being in a fantasy and it being a room to explore the morality of it rather than coming down specifically as this is the one good way to be. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how I'd write it differently, obviously. I'm not... Obviously not, but like I can't even pinpoint a bit that I change. No, absolutely um, not. The the thing is, and the thing is in all of this kind of story, not just in practice ones, is there is a certain suspension of disbelief in that if Vimes was not Vimes, then all this would be very different. But he is. If if whoever had managed to 
well, actually, it is kind of shown because Casa also rises up through the rank of sergeant immediately and shows exactly what can happen if if it's, it's not, not Vimes, Vimes who's suddenly given that power but can charisma his way through the I mean, I feel like barriers. there is quite a big spectrum between Vimes and Casa. It's no, not... Yeah. No, exactly, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's what I said. <laughs> no, I mean, Casa is more than just not Vimes. He's as far yeah, away from the Vimes, anti-Vimes as Vimes. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, I guess it's like saying, you know, uh, neon pink, it, it's not khaki. Technically true. <laughs> He's been dead for well over 70 years. <laughs> Better than, say, burning down an orphanage. <laughs> <laughs> Call back. This, um, is, this is better than burning down an orphanage. Yes, burn down way. torturers, not orphanages. Yeah, And like taking a step back from our being moral about it and looking at real world parallels, isn't it fucking satisfying to see the place burn down? Oh, God, yeah. Let's revel in this for a minute. Let's revel in the good feelings we're meant to feel when you see the place burn to the ground and rust punched out on the floor. And Swing meeting the Grim Reaper. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and not knowing how to cope with that with his calipers. Indeed. <laughs> no, it's a beautiful climax to build to. And part of the reason I decided not to end it there, but to end it slightly later with Caster speaking to the sergeants, is it's a beautiful climax to build to. And then there's so much to come from it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is like, we've now gone into the epilogue of this section, which takes us into the prologue of the next bit, which is very, yeah. yeah. Ah, so many endings. More endings than Return of the King. Right. Francine, do you want to lighten the mood with a uh, obscure reference finial? Yes. And luckily for us, it, it, it is quite a nice one. Um, and it does hinge on the fact I misremembered a line. So apologies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so right at the beginning of this section, we have... There were hints that it was going to be a sunny day. That should bring things on after the overnight rain. The lilacs, for example. And somewhere in my head, I'd remembered that line as like he was seeing the lilacs do something. And that had that like, you know how sometimes you can look at bits of plant life and say, ah, that means the weather's going to do this, that and the other. Yes. So I thought it was something like that. I mean, I can't, but people can. So I made a mental note to look up as like, uh, is lilac one of those weather forecasty flowers? Um, mm-hmm. and didn't then bother checking the line to see that that's not what he meant at all. Anyway, it's not really, but it's interesting in a different way and kind of ties back into the book. Do you know what phonology is, P-H-E-N, without that important R? No, I don't know anything about phonology. Well, it's quite cool. It's the study of periodic events in biological life cycles. Mm-hmm. Less annoyingly described. You know, if you make a note of like the first time you see this flower bloom, the first time you see this insect appear in the year, yeah um that's what this is basically oh right and and so it's very good for tracking things like climate change or tracking the effect of pollutants on things and that's uh or or just learning how to understand plants and stuff is how it was used at the start of the science Mm -hmm. um but turns out lilac's actually a really useful plant for that and has been um used as kind of the measure of weather patterns over decades um since like the 1870s or something like that oh cool um so um lilac elderberry and uh honeysuckle were the three ones i kept finding popping up again um because lilac... a nice perfume as well yeah quite cool, cool. phonology very cool and good <laughs> right let's obsess over that for a bit yeah we will. okay that's why i didn't send you the link yet <laughs> i think that's probably everything we are going to say today about that section of Nightwatch. we are going to be back next week for part four as we mentioned at the beginning, a four-parter starting on page 356 in the Corgi paperback. It was a beguiling theory that might have arisen in the minds of Wiglet and Waddy. <laughs> what a lovely sentence. 
Lovely Wiglet and Woody. Until next week, dear listener, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Can. You're allowed. You can follow us on Instagram at the True Show Make You Fret, on Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at the True Show Make You Fret. Join our subreddit community, r slash TTSMYF. Email us your thoughts, queries, castle snacks, and weather predicting flowers, the True Show Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, go to patreon.com forward slash the True Show Make You Fret, where you can exchange your hard earned pennies for all sorts of bonus nonsense. And last of all, because I keep forgetting to say this, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. It helps other people find us because of the algorithm. And we like compliments. And we like compliments. <laughs> we made it. It's mainly that. We made we it high enough in work. like charts and things to actually organically pe- appear on one of the Apple podcast pages the other week. And I was very excited by this. Oh, yay. Well done. I think we've gone down in the rankings again. Yeah, rate and oh, review us. <laughs> and until next time, dear listener. Don't let us detain you. Um, um. He's dead now. <laughs> we can say it properly. Just notice line at the top of the phonology page, which you're like, it's not to be confused with phrenology, phonology, or phenomenology. <laughs> do, 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 do. <laughs> Phenomenon.